Testing. Um, the first reading is taken from Isaiah, um, chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. And if you want to follow it in the Church Bibles, it's on page 511. So that's Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. It's comfort for God's people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fail, or fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the town of Judah, here is your God. See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with them, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those that have young. This is the word of the Lord. The third reading comes from Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, found on page 702 in the Church Bibles. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? or needing clothes, and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison, and go to visit you? The king will reply, 
I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone, it's good to see you're here this morning. My name is Jimmy, I'm one of the ministers here at All Saints, and we're glad that you're with us here. Uh, we're in our, in our second week of Advent, in Advent season, as we look forward to the birth of our newborn king. We spend our time up until that point reflecting on the king's second coming and how that what that means for us living now in the present. And so last week we began that looking at the theme of being prepared and being watchful for the king's return. And this week we continue that theme as we come to this passage here in Matthew 25. So how about you join me in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your love. We thank you, Father, that we can come before you and to hear your word. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning as we reflect upon your son's second coming. We ask, Lord, that you'd help us to know how we ought to live our lives now in response to that second coming. So we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. I don't know if you've been following the Royal Commission into the banking sector, but some of the things that have been coming to light have been pretty shocking, haven't they? Bank employees uh, accepting bribes to facilitate loans based on false documents. Some banks have been charging fees to clients who have died. Selling insurance plans to customers that weren't appropriate for them. And AMP have been charging customers fees for services they don't even use. And they even tried to deny it and cover it all up. And of course, it all came out. Now, I don't know a lot about finance and how it all works. And I've always been aware of people being suspicious of banks. I thought it was like an Australian thing to be suspicious of banks. But now, after these revelations, I get why. It's frightening that so many Australians like myself, who know nothing about financial services, who know nothing about the products that we have with our banks, are being charged and being manipulated with fees that we don't even know we're being charged for. It's why I'm grateful for inquiries like the Royal Commission, which has the specific purpose on revealing uh, and bringing to light what people have tried to keep hidden. These banks make it look like they're for my interest, they're in my, they have my best interests in mind, but the revelations of the Royal Commission show otherwise. Now at the heart of what's going on in the Royal Commission is a revealing that brings division. It breaks down the facade propped up by these banks and reveals what they have tried to get away with in secret. Dividing being those in the right and those in the wrong. And in so doing, giving us a very clear picture of reality. 
In our passage this morning, we have a similar revelation that brings division, but on a much bigger scale. What we have in Matthew 25 is not simply a royal commission presided by a commissioner, but a worldwide judgment presided by its king. We read in verse 31, When the Son of Man came in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne before him, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus describes the ret- his return on judgment and he's coming back in glory, which is quite different compared to the way he first came back, which wasn't very glorious. He was born in a manger amongst animals in a backwater place called Bethlehem, hardly the place you'd expect a king of the world to be born. When he was born, we read in chapter 1 of John's Gospel that although he was their king, although he came as the light of the world, his own people didn't even recognize who he was, their king. And even so, much less today. For many people, Jesus is a, is a guru. He's a, an example to follow. He's a revolutionary. Someone's looked up to. He's an all-around good guy. Someone with great leadership principles to follow. He is the baby at Christmas. He's not the king of the world, though. He's not the king of our life. But this will all change when he comes again in glory with his army of angels to take his seat on his glorious throne with all people before him from every single nation. No one is going to miss him for who he is this time. All people will recognize him for who he is as the all-powerful, almighty king of this world. And he will divide all people from all nations into those who belong to him and those who do not, like a shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. So in the same way, a royal commission reveals not only what's going on, but also who is in the right and the wrong. The king on the throne, his glorious return, will bring all things into light. Nothing will remain hidden including where you and I stand before this king. And he will call all people who belong to him into his kingdom, and those who do not, he will cast out. There are those who might be able to fool other sheep, but they will not fool the great shepherd who knows his sheep by name. Now this passage seems quite frightening, doesn't it? I mean, if we read it as if it could go either way for us as his people, then we're left feeling anxious and fearful, freaking out, what if I'm a fake? What if I'm not truly one of God's people? What if I'm a goat instead? I don't think we should read the passage like that. If we do, we become tied up in fear. We don't know how to live. But we must remember who Jesus is talking to, his disciples, his brothers, This passage follows along from last week's passage. It's actually the same conversation, which has the overarching theme of being prepared and being watchful for this final day of judgment. He's not telling them about his return to make them feel scared, to take away their hope and certainty. He's actually telling them to ensure it, to prepare them, to help them so they can live life in the present really well. So to help us be ready for such a day, he gives us the criteria judgment. It's kind of like in school or university when a teacher gives you the marking criteria for an essay. You know those marking criteria that teachers will give you? 
for your essay to help you to work out what makes a good essay and what makes a bad essay. They'll give it to you because the marking criteria helps to separate out what is a good and bad essay. Now, I only really discovered that they were worth looking at around second year of college. Pretty much, I just copied whatever Paul wrote and put it into my essay. Paul was kind of those guys who, when it came to an essay, he would, he would freak out. He'd tell me, I don't know what it says or means. I'm not sure what to write. I'm not sure what to put into this essay. And then the essay would come back, and he would have a HD. He was one of those guys, one of those really brainy, smart types. And so pretty much, I just said to Paul, Paul, whatever you say, I'm going to put in my essay. But the marking criteria also really helps. It helps you to work out how many sources you need, what you need to put into your essay for the, to get a good mark. In the same way, we have this passage. It's a criteria that Jesus will use to judge. He gives us this criteria so we can be prepared. The question for us this morning then is, what is it? What is the criteria? When Jesus comes to bring all things into the light and divide up the people, what is the criterion he will use to do so? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And the point, again, I need to highlight, is not to bring anxiety or fear, but certainty and hope. And so after dividing up between the sheep and the goats, placing those who belong to him on his right and those on his left, the king will begin to deliver his reasoning, revealing the criterion that he's used in his judgment. He says in verse 35, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, it's a very interesting criteria for judgment, isn't it? You'd expect Jesus to say, Did you obey the Ten Commandments? Did you go to church every single Sunday? Were you a good person? Do good things. When it comes to most of us in our world today, most people in general, when they think of a kind of judgment day, they think of weighing up the scales. They think weighing up all the good and the bad, and they hope that the good in the end outweighs the bad. They'll say often, I think before God, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm good enough. I haven't killed anyone haven't done any really terrible things. They hope their good outweighs the bad. There's a great show on Netflix called The Good Place, which is all about this issue, trying to measure and work out how good you need to be to get to the good place, which is heaven, so you don't go to the bad place, which is hell. And they have this entire point system to try and work out how, many, how much good you need to do to get to this good place. And if you don't have enough points, then you go to the bad place. It's a hilarious TV show. Do watch. It's good, good binge TV. But in this passage, that's not the criteria at all. It's not about keeping the law. It's not about weighing up the scales and hoping you're good enough. The criteria seems to be all about how did you respond to the king? Oh dear. How did you respond to the king? How did you treat him? We either treat Jesus well or we don't. As we see in verse 42, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was, sorry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not even visit me. It's all about how we treat the king. There are those in that day who will treat the king poorly and they will not enter into the kingdom. But 
when has Jesus in our life been hungry or thirsty? When has he been estranged at the door? I've never seen Jesus naked for one, sick or in prison. When has that happened to us? How does that work? When would anyone have an opportunity to respond to Jesus in that way, to treat him well, when he is the eternal, all-powerful and almighty, clothed in majesty king of this world? Such a question is on the mind of both groups of people when he says this. And we read about it in verse 37. Lord, when we see you hungry, feed you. Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And we see a similar answer in verse 42. They're very confused, right? It's kind of fair enough too. How is this possible? And we see Jesus answer the question in verse 40. And this is where the criteria becomes crystal clear. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, Least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. All people will be judged based on how they treated and responded to Jesus as seen in their treatment of the least of these, my brothers and sisters. Now, who exactly are the least of these? Some commentators say that the least of these expands to all people in need, despite what they think and believe, as I say, the criteria of judgment is based on how you treat and care for every single person that you come across in your life, or everyone who is in need. However, that was simply reinforced wrongly again, our world's view of judgment, that all you need to do to be saved is to do good and enough good to outweigh the bad for all people. That doesn't make sense of Matthew's gospel, especially in chapter 1, where he says that Jesus came to save us from our sin. There's no amount of good that we can do, no matter how much we do it, that we can become saved ourselves. We need Jesus to save us from our sin. We need God to radically intervene in our life and to save us from sin. So that can't be what Jesus means here. Instead, we should see the least of these as those who belong to Jesus, the sheep, which in the immediate context is the disciples. They are the ones that he is talking about. And so the criteria of judgment becomes about how our world responds and treats Jesus' disciples or those who follow him. That would make sense as well of this language, least of these. Elsewhere in, in Matthew, Jesus refers to the disciples as little ones. In Matthew 10, we, re- we see when Jesus is sending out the disciples to preach the gospel to the world, he says to them, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus identifies himself so closely with his people as to feed them and to clothe them, to care for them, to welcome them in, to visit them in prison, is to do that all for him. How you treat the disciples, those who follow the king, is how you treat the king himself. To be clear, it's not that being a Christian, uh, sorry, being charitable to Christians guarantees you being saved, as if to say that you can ensure your salvation by being a nice person to Christians and at the same time not be a Christian yourself. Rather, Jesus is thinking of a holistic response to the disciples and to his followers. So like in Matthew 10, to receive the disciples is to also receive their message 
but the good news of Jesus and the hope he has for them and the loving grace he has to save them from their sin. So to care for them and to give them what they need is to show that that message of hope has become rooted in their heart. And their grace has transformed them so much so that they want to care for God's people in Jesus Christ. To reject the disciples and their message, so therefore not caring for them, sending them along their way, was to reject and to fail to care for Jesus. In this passage, Jesus reveals the problem that is at the heart of a lot of religiosity, especially when it comes to judgment. And that is that the lie that you can love God and not his people. That you can love Jesus and not his church. And this passage promises that such hypocrisy will be exposed on the day of judgment. In high school, the people who most got on my nerves were the kids who would suck up to the teachers and just dob you in and pretend they were the greatest thing ever since sliced bread. And the teachers looked at them and thought they were little angels, that they were the best thing, that every student should be like them. But the moment the teacher left the room or turned her back or his back, that kid would muck around, be manipulative, be a bully, and not live up to the expectation the teacher had, otherwise being a fake. Perhaps you can think of co-workers who act in a similar kind of way towards their manager, but the moment the manager leaves, they're totally different to their fellow employees. Rude, selfish, manipulative. The problem is, is that they present themselves as good and honest people, but otherwise, they're actually hypocrites in the end. They don't live up to the expectations they put in front of their manager or their teacher. And the most frustrating part about this is they're seen to get away with it in the end. On the day of judgment, when it comes to those who say they love God but don't love his people, they will be exposed to who they are. Why? Because their poor treatment won't only be seen by the king, their poor treatment will be experienced by the king. That's how closely Jesus identifies himself with his people. To treat them bad is to treat Jesus himself bad as well. In the book of Acts, we meet a very zealous lover of God by the name of Saul, who seeks to protect the Jewish religion, the religion of God's people, from the poison of this Christian sect that's arisen. He rounds up all these Christians, putting them in jail and executing them. And on his way to Damascus one day, he meets the risen Lord Jesus. And he says to him, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, perhaps you could have asked the same question as those in Matthew 25. When have I ever persecuted you, Jesus? He does ask, though, who are you, Lord? He probably knows, but he's just checking. Then Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. He doesn't point out the, the Christians. He says, you're persecuting me. To Jesus, ill treatment of those who follow him isn't merely just wrong, it's personal. Why? Because he loves his church. He loves his people. He loves you. That's why. 
The point of this passage, I think, is to remind the disciples and us today what the saving grace of God does to us, to move us to commit ourselves to a life of generosity and selflessness towards our brothers and sisters in Jesus because he himself has done that for us. That is the true program of life for the Christian. He could have said so many things about the criteria of judgment. He could have told us that we need to be faithful to him, to, to live a life of worship and obedience, to trust in him with all our heart and mind. But he doesn't mention those things because they're captured up in the life lived in love to our God and to each other. He says in Matthew 22, asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. The love for God and the love for his people is at the heart of what the grace of God does to us when we come to follow Jesus, because his love has been poured out on us. The problem is, though, is we often forget and we follow a different criteria to what it means to be Christian. Because of sin, we're prone to relapsing into a more worldly, Christianized view. We measure our faith or our individual experience of God as if to say that it's all about how close we feel to him, or, sorry, how mystically spiritual we are. We measure our faith by our knowledge of God to say that the more we know, the more we can be assured that we are saved. We measure our faith by how holy we think we are. As if to say that the more and more holy we become, the more confident we can be because of our actions. None of these are inherently bad, just to say that. We should all desire to want to experience God by His Spirit. We should all want to live a life of holiness, to, to understand, to know God more and more and more. But just to point out, that's not the criteria of judgment. Jesus is not going to ask you on Judgment Day, have you read your Bible every single day? Did you go to church every single Sunday? All these are well and good and are proper to the Christian life. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels but not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may, not, may, that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Love for one another, as we love God, is the sign that the grace of God is working in your life. Why? Because whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it was his love for us that motivated him to save us. Out of his holiness and power, the most holy one, the most powerful one, out of his perfection and glory, out of his wisdom and majesty, overflowed the love of Father, Son, and Spirit to us by grace through what Christ did for us in his coming to die on the cross. To truly experience God and his spirit is not simply to have an incredible euphoric moment in worship or experience by his spirit, but rather, as Paul says, True spirituality is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The test of a truly spiritual person is how they treat their brothers and sisters. Do they love them? Do they care for them? 
To truly know God is to know that the essential inner being of God is love. God is love, as John says. To truly be holy is to live a life set apart. Why? For the love of each other. To show that we are unlike the world. We love each other and forgive and show grace. And we even visit each other in prison. Because the grace shown to us motivates us to do so. This is what the grace of God does when we follow Jesus and accept him as our saviour. He saves us so we can love. He invites us to love each other, the church. I can imagine that loving each other is hard to do. I can imagine that there's people in this room who struggle to love each other right now. And you might hear people say that you've got to try harder to love someone. That's not the answer. The answer, instead of to try harder, is to be captured once more by the incredible grace of God on your life that he sent Jesus to save you from your sins whilst you are still a sinner. He died for you so you could receive his kingdom. The more you are captured by that incredible grace that you have not earned your place in the kingdom, the more and more you'll be able to love each other even when it's hard even when it's really, really hard. Look, this is the criteria of judgment. On that day, all things will be revealed. Jesus, as the great king, will divide between those who belong to him and those who do not. And it will be those who have received Jesus, as they have received his message and his followers, who will receive the kingdom. Why? Because the evidence will be so obvious their love for Jesus as seen in their love for each other, his church. Again, the whole point here is not to live in fear. Do not be afraid. Do not worry. This passage is supposed to remind us, to prepare us, to love each other. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember how much he has loved you and let that spur you on to being busy living a life of love, seeking to know God more, experience him more, to grow in your holiness and more, to, commit, to be committed to gathering together more and more so you can love each other. Because that is how you prepare for the day he returns. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible grace. None of us here deserve it. None of us here deserve to be welcomed into your kingdom. But through the death and resurrection of your son, through his coming for the first and the second time, we can be able to enter into your kingdom by your grace. Father, help us to see that the way to prepare for such a day, a glorious day, a day full of hope, is to love each other now. We'll be motivated by love of your son to love others transformed by your grace more and more and more so we can love each other and care for each other even when it's really tough. Help us, Father, do this so we can be a witness to the world around us of what you're doing by your Spirit, that you're a gracious God who loves us. We pray this in his name. Amen.